We'll go back to Proverbs 19 this week, kind of coincidentally. Uh, the proverb I want to look at is again in 19, this time verse 11. And uh, just so you know, there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to the ones I'm picking. I was think, I, telling the laws the other day, I kind of made a list of ones that were interesting and I'm going through ones that piqued my interest. So this one caught my interest today. And uh, so this is the one we're going to be going through. And I think it is uh, indeed a very valuable proverb, as all of them are. So uh, let's pray and then we will um, look at this proverb this morning. <coughs> Our Father, you are high and, and lifted up far above all the things that we can conceive, yet you have condescended to covenant with us, your people. And you've taken it upon yourself to bring sinners to yourself so that you are our God and we are your people. And you have stooped uh, to speak to us in lisps so we might know something about you. So speak to us yet again through the reading and preaching of your word. And may we hear with clarity and understand with accuracy and obey with urgency. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Uh, Once again, I added a New Testament reading um, in the name of devoting ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, And this one is, I think, a fine example of how Christ exemplifies what we find in our proverb this morning. So we'll read from Matthew 27 and then Proverbs 19:11. Matthew 27:11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus said, "You have said so." But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave himself no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. In Proverbs 19, in verse 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Amen. This is God's word. Kelly can tell you I'm really touchy about my eyes. Uh, one time I got a fly, fly fishing, like behind my eyelid. It didn't stick, but it kind of went and got stuck behind it. And there was no way Kelly was helping me with that. It was all on me to get it out because no one's touching my eyes. Uh, another time I got a, a grinder shaving, a piece of metal in my eye. And I went into the ER and they helped me get it out. But the, the, the nurse was rinsing my eye, and I must have been making this terrible face because she goes, Are you okay? Like, I'm just an, I'm a wimp about my eyes. I'm very touchy about my eyes. Um, and I think this proverb I'm stealing from Tim Keller here, he points out that this proverb deals with touchiness. Some of us are touchy, um, we can be hypersensitive to offense. Some of us are more sensitive than others, but uh, all of us have our sensitive nerves. 
all of us can be touchy. We all have thinner skin in certain parts, sensitive underbellies. And when those get poked, uh, we respond negatively. We're quick to lash out when we get poked in our underbellies. We want to put up our dukes. We want to fight. We want to defend our honor. This proverb commends to us really the virtue of meekness in the face of offense. It teaches us that if we obtain wisdom in this area, uh, we will also obtain a fuse that's a little bit slower burning and a little bit longer. And that by getting wisdom, we can actually make our skin a little thicker. And it goes on to commend to us the virtue of letting things go. That even though every fiber in our heart screams out for vengeance, it's actually a point of great personal honor and glory to overlook an offense. And it's a lovely jewel set in our our very character when we can learn this virtue. So the proposition this morning, the chief exhortation of this sermon is adorn yourself with the hidden gem of meekness. Adorn yourself with the hidden gem of meekness. Um, The problem is we have this streak within us that almost seeks out offense. It's like we want to be offended. We're, We're looking for something to be angry about. I've observed this many times, sometimes within myself, but some people just seem to wallow in this misery. When you talk to them, the whole conversation is about how so-and-so did such-and-such. Their kids did this. Their spouse or ex-spouse did this. Their boss, the government, the church they used to go to, but of course they don't go to anymore. (laughs) They're sad and lonely people, and it's no wonder. I would rather stay away myself, because I'm quite certain when I leave, their gossip and scorn will be turned toward me. Of course, that's not to say there's nothing to gripe about. There is. Um, There are many injustices in the world. We don't have to dig deep at all, even in the best of friends, to find something we could take offense at. This may be out of context, but seek and ye shall find. This love of offense, the seeking out offense, breeds so much misery. And the poor souls who are caught in this cycle are constantly dwelling on how mistreated they are, how everyone's out to get them. And truth be told, because it is an unattractive disposition, it doesn't take long for people to turn against a hypersensitive, hypercritical person, which only serves to perpetuate the cycle. But why do we do this to ourselves? What's the root cause? As with most sins or all sins, uh, the sin of anger, or rather the sin of sinful anger, because there is such a thing as righteous anger, and the sin of brooding are rooted in the sin of pride. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to learn to submit. We don't want to turn the other cheek. We, 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 when our own lofty self-perceptions are challenged or when our weaknesses are exposed, we're quick to lash out. We think that if we can prove how bad everyone else is, we can make ourselves appear better by contrast. 
pride manifests itself in several ways. Uh, one way is taking justice into our own hands, seeking vengeance. We feel that it's kind of incumbent upon us to defend our honor. It's like, oh, they're not going to get one over on me. I'm too smart for that. They're, they'll get what's coming to them, right? But Proverbs wisely warns against this in chapter 24, verse 29. It says, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. It's a, really a fool's errand to take justice into our own hands. Pride also manifests itself in our uh, compulsion to win arguments, to be quarrelsome. It doesn't matter so much if we're right so long as we win. Sometimes we just like to argue because we like the fight, or maybe we're bored, or we like to announce our opinions. Again, Proverbs corrects this attitude. Uh, 29.11, a fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 26.20-22, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. As a charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. I think our own perception of ourselves is that we're on top. We're in control. We're smart. We're strong. We're capable. We are dominant. And when somebody challenges that, legitimately or not, we get our hackles up. It's like you ever poke a crawdad? Immediately, their claws... <laughs> That's what we're like when we get poked. We want to fight. Vengeance and quarrelsome... Uh, our vengeance and quarrelsome nature are just a few ways that pride manifests itself in the face of offense. And the problem we face as fallen human beings is we lack necessary wisdom to see that anger is rarely the right course of action. And that it's actually better to just let it go. The proverb again for this morning, 1911, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I've tried to kind of boil this proverb down into a, a concise exhortation, which I've already told you, adorn yourself with the hidden gem of meekness. I think that's what's at the base of this proverb. And I want to go through that exhortation to see how both how God would have us act in the face of offense and how we can bring ourselves really a measure of glory and honor in the way we adorn our character. So first off, let's begin with the definition of meekness. The Bible commends meekness. Numbers 12 says that the man Moses was very meek above all men which were upon the face of the earth. And Jesus said, of course, on the Sermon on the Mount, actually alluding to Psalm 37, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One definition I think is perfect of meekness is mild of temper, not easily provoked or irritated, patient under injuries, not vain or haughty or resentful, forbearing, 
submissive. I mean, that's the perfect summary of this proverb, isn't it? That definition of meekness, I'll read it again one more time. Mild of temper, not easily provoked or irritated, patient under injuries, not vain or haughty or respectful, forbearing, submissive. I think my tendency is to think of meekness as wimpiness. And it's actually not true. The meek are those with the thickest skin. They're the ones who can let an insult pass like water off a duck without giving it a second thought. They're the ones that can debate a cause rationally without becoming emotionally over-invested or easily provoked to anger. I think the meek of the earth are the tough ones. The Net Bible had some really great comments on this proverb. I found a couple of them really helpful. Uh, one they quoted from another commentator. <coughs> this is spot on. The virtue which is indicated here is more than forgiving temper. It includes also the ability to shrug off insults and the absence of a brooding hypersensitivity. It contains elements of toughness and self-discipline. It is the capacity to stifle a hot emotional rejoinder and to sleep on an insult. Meekness is the opposite of things we normally associate with strength, but it is actually true strength. Bluster and anger and forcefulness and violence, they're fronts. They're false fronts. Meekness is true strength and true beauty in our character. And that really, so that's the definition of meekness. And and that's the the point of the first half of the um, exhortation that I gave you. That is, adorn yourself with the hidden gem of meekness. Meekness is such a lovely quality, but it's not often praised enough. I think sports provide an interesting window into this topic. Um, Worldly glory is seen in victory, and it's usually the strongest, the fastest, the hardest-hitting players that get the glory. And yet, I think in the end, in the post-game championship interviews, who's the more compelling person? The, The winner, who is braggadocious, or the loser, who's willing to be meek and humble, who commends the other team for a game well played. Who's the more attractive interview? In another really helpful note from the Net Bible, um, they comment, Glory signifies the idea of beauty or adornment. Derek Kinder explains that such patience brings out here the glowing colors of a virtue which in practice may look drably unassertive. I love that comment. I'm going to read it again. This is so important. It brings out here the glowing colors of a virtue which in practice may look drably unassertive. I love that because it's the perfect explanation of the Christian life. It's like the cross, drably unassertive. Perhaps we could say even grossly passive. And yet it displays true beauty, honor, and victory and is a demonstration of true strength and power. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense.
it's a challenging proverb because it's a call to lay aside our own perceptions of what glory means and honor and to pick up another drably unassertive form of glory and honor. But it's a call worth heeding because when we lay aside that sort of prideful anger and vengeance and pick up meekness and patience, what we're doing is kind of laying aside a gaudy, plastic, uh, rhinestone-encrusted dollar store tiara for like a, a genuine diamond on a fine necklace worn beneath the collar. But the genuine article... One is flashy, the other is real. So again, the call is adorn yourself with that hidden gem of meekness. Now it's all well and good to extol the <laughs> virtues of meekness. And I don't think I have to convince anyone here to the contrary that it's a valuable um, virtue to have but the real challenge is and the real question is where do we get this gem how do we get our hands on that that's the real challenge now we wouldn't seek diamonds in a copper mine neither would we we, sh- we shouldn't seek any spiritual blessing in any other place than the place that, that they may be found which is in Christ in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place Places. Um, so if I preach through Proverbs and, and give you a, a series of practical uh, virtues that you may live out in your life, but I don't also point you to Christ as the source of those virtues, I'm doing you a great disservice. Because in Him are every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We can get our hands on all the worldly wisdom we want, but that's fool's gold. It's not the genuine article. In Christ and Christ alone are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as with every virtuous characteristic, of course, um, Jesus is the finest example of that. Of any man who's walked the face of the earth, he is the perfect example of weakness, um, of meekness rather. If we were to condescend to become an ant and to share in their likeness, that would be far too generous a comparison to the incarnation, what Jesus did. The greatest, most meek, humble action ever taken by any person. Second of the person of the Trinity, the creator, the sustainer, the judge of all the universe. He could have, when we sinned, he could have beat his chest. He could have stuck up for himself. He could have returned vengeance upon his rebel creation. But because he's infinitely wise, his his fuse burns slowly. Because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and because his glory is in overlooking an offense, he didn't wipe the sons of men off the face of the earth. Instead, in a divine Passover, he overlooked the sins of some. For all who have the blood of the Lamb on their lintels, he does not count transgression against them. He has overlooked an offense. The Son of God stooped so low as to become that lamb himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What drab unassertiveness. 
But because of that act of drab unassertiveness, God has highly exalted him high above all rule and authority. And therefore, we likewise are able to follow his example. As Philippians 2 calls us to do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind of, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the example of true meekness. So if we go looking for meekness, we look to him for the example. But he's not only an example, he's also the source of meekness. Notice there in Philippians what he said. He didn't say, have this mind among yourselves in which it is your duty to do the very best you can to follow Jesus' example. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 is another great example of this. And if you'll turn there, we'll spend a little time in Colossians. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. <coughs> Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as... God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So leave your finger there in Colossians. Uh, This is a strong exhortation. These are things we must do, we must put on as Christians. But notice, they're not things we must put on to become Christians. He says, put them on because you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And if you trace it back, it's all because we've been raised with Christ in union with Him. They're all the result of our new life in Christ. And they're really the fruit of being connected to the vine. So, if you're looking to your own life and you're saying, man, I stink at this. I'm not good at letting things go. I think you need to take heart because this is one of those sanctification fruits. They emerge slowly in the Christian. Fruit starts as a bud and then a flower and is pollinated. And then it becomes this little teeny fruit and it takes time to grow. And then once it grows to full size, it takes time to reach full color and full sweetness. These fruits, like meekness, are fruits that take a lifetime to develop. They'll be completed in glory, but not until then. But we can begin to put them on now. And I can only point you to Christ for this fruit, because sanctification, like justification, is by faith alone. If you're trusting in anything else, in in yourself, in some other guru, for obtaining the fruit of meekness, uh, it, it will not emerge. It only emerges in Christ. Now, before closing, I want to pause a little bit more on this Colossians 3 passage because it contains so much practical import on the topic at hand, particularly as it pertains to the life of the church, the life of the body. Um, We remember the proverbial line, 
It is his glory to overlook an offense. I think Paul really puts some more meat on those bones here in Colossians 3. Bearing with one another, he says in verse 13, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. So let's put it in in really simple terms. If someone has done you some wrong, especially a brother or sister in Christ, get over it. (laughs) That's what he's saying. There's no room in Christ's body for gangrenous resentment. I don't know about you, but I don't know anywhere in Scripture that grudges are commended as virtuous. The reason I state that strongly is because if there's one thing that will kill a church, it's resentment. Anger and resentment are the things that infect and spread and suck the life out of churches. And they tarnish the glory of Christ and they are unacceptable. I love Paul's choice of words here. Bearing with one another. Essentially he's saying, put up with each other. You're going to have to put up with each other if you're going to get along. I'm quite sure in the three years I've been here, I've sinned against you. We sin against each other. We don't have to hold each other's feet to the fire every time we sin against each other. It is his glory to overlook an offense. The call here is to let it go. I'm aware that I may be pressing on some tender nerves on this topic. Because I I know everybody's story here pretty much. And I know that at least in part, we're all in this room because of a trying church experience somewhere in our past. And so I just want to press a little harder on those nerves, since I'm already there. And say, this principle applies to those brothers and sisters, too, that offended you. We may be grumpy at one another, but one day, all of us, all of us jerks, will be standing arm in arm before the king, singing his praises together. So that doesn't mean we all have to get together now and sing Kumbaya. But it is to say that we adorn ourselves with the lovely gem of of meekness if we are the ones to let it go. We can take the high road, leaving justice to God, seeking restoration rather than recompense. We don't have to exact our pound of flesh. We don't even have to receive the apology we deserve first before we go and overlook an offense. Now, as Michael taught us this morning, this is a proverb, and proverbs are truisms, and truisms that need to be balanced against their counterpart truisms. So there's more to the story. Proverbs 25:26 says, Like a muddled spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So Christians are people who are called up, called called to stand, to stand for justice, especially when the innocent are being attacked, other people are being attacked. Proverbs 31, 
Uh, 8 and 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So, for example, meekness does not mean we overlook the offense of abortion. It's not glorious to overlook injustices perpetrated against the poor and the innocent. And even at times, we have to deal with things. We have to deal with sin. We have to take a stand against those who have sinned against us. The classic text, Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there is a time and a place for that, treating people as a Gentile and a tax collector. After you've gone through the whole process over years of formal church discipline. God has established his channels for punishment of the wicked. Um, Parents, church discipline, civil government, the final judgment of Christ. Notice on that list is not our passive-aggressive grouchiness. (laughs) It's not our responsibility to be vindictive. So we're left with two options then. When someone sins against us, we get over it or we deal with it. An absolute non-option is to gossip about it behind their backs, to let it fester in our own souls. And that's, I think, most often what we do, isn't it? If we're honest, we, we hold their feet to the fire, at least in our own minds. Perhaps we take it out on them in passive ways. We make subtle slights about them to others. These are weak, unattractive, dishonorable ways of handling offenses. The Bible has two options. Get over it or deal with it. Now you may be offended by what I'm saying right now, in which case I encourage you to get over it or deal with it. (laughs) But you may be saying in your heart, you don't know how bad they hurt me. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's hurt. I'm saying that the balm for the sting of offense is found in dressing the wounds biblically. Remove the foreign object and don't pick the scab. The gem of meekness in the face of offense is so healing, it's so lovely, and it's so honorable. So I'll leave you with this thought. Jesus as well as the deacon Stephen, or Stephen, both held their gems of meekness front and center as they suffered the most unjust fates, murder at the hands of wicked men. While hanging on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen, while being stoned, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Fine examples of overlooking an offense. 
May we learn in Christ this goodwill toward our worst offenders so that we may lay aside offenses and adorn ourselves with the hidden gem of meekness. Amen. Amen.